the amazing underground city, the catacombs were far more than a cemetery. And a mile after subterranean mile, they preserve a detailed portrait of early Christian life. On May 31st, 1578, some Italian vineyard workers made a significant discovery. Near Rome, they stumbled onto the entrance to a catacomb, an underground graveyard of the sort their ancestors had used 12 centuries earlier. Wonderful to relate, gushed Caesar Baronius, a church historian and the runner-up in two 16th century papal elections. It was nothing less than a city beneath the earth. Rome, he added, was astonished. Particularly astonished was Antonio Bosio, an 18-year-old law graduate from Malta. Bosio's life was at an impasse. Law had lost its charm for him. From his uncle, he had inherited the job of agent for the Knights of Malta in Rome. But a lifetime stamping passports had little allure for a man with Bosio's intellectual and scholarly gifts. When came news of discovery, a winter window had reopened on ancient Christian Rome. Bosio determined to spend the rest of his life investigating what lay beyond it. And so he did, leaving at his death in 1629 two volumes of manuscript notes, each containing over a thousand pages in folio. This massive handwritten databank formed the basis for Bosio's magisterial Roma Saturneo, the subterranean Rome, whose publication two years after he died justly prompted his admirers to dub him the Christopher Columbus of the catacombs. Indeed, since Bosio's discoveries, Jewish and Christian catacombs have been found in many ancient Roman cities. Bosio's first journey underground almost ended in disaster. In 1593, he and a group of friends set out on a tour of the catacombs named for St. Flavia Domitilla, a noblewoman who had owned the site of the first century. From central grottoes, he he wrote in his journal, there departed galleries in all directions of the wind, galleries that, in turn, seemed to divide themselves into thousands of new galleries. In the presence of such wonders, time ceased to matter, that is, until it dawned on him that their candles had run out. Around them lay miles of unlit, unmapped passages. No wonder, as Bosio wrote in his journal, that he and his friends fully expected to end up polluting this holy monument with our impure bodies. That didn't happen, of course, but what Bosio's near-death experience did do was lead him to take a scientific approach in exploring the catacombs. In the first place, it made him resolve never again to venture below ground without ropes, shells, and of course, plenty of candles. But another lesson Domitilla Catacomb taught him was the vital importance of being methodical. It is no coincidence that in the history of archaeology, Bosio is famous for attention to detail. Catacomb research in his day was spasmodic and haphazard. He turned it into a veritable science. Knowing of an ancient Roman bylaw forbidding burials within the city walls, he looked for catacombs in the countryside. Reason convinced him that such extensive construction would most likely have taken place along highways, so he focused his attention to the main roads leading into Rome. He also studied the itinerary, a series of medieval tourist brochures for pilgrims visiting martyrs' shrines in Rome. Thus, he brought 30 catacombs to light, surveyed, sketched, and measured them, and copied the inscriptions on their walls. Because some can no longer be found, scholars rely on Bosio's Roma Saturneo as evidence that they once existed. What then did Baronius's city beneath the earth actually consist of? 
So far, 60 catacombs containing an estimated 750,000 graves and forming a 620-mile-long multi-level labyrinth have been unearthed. Archaeologists have good reason for believing there are still more to come. At a time when horsepower referred to horses, how was such extensive tunneling possible? One thing that helped was Rome's subsoil, which consists, for the most part, of tufa, uh, tufa, a porous volcanic material ideally suited to subterranean construction. When there are expert fossors, or diggers, far more than just pick, pick and shovel men, they designed and engineered, and they may have had a hand in wall painting as well. Fossors built catacombs in stages. A fossor would cut a vertical shaft, say 10 feet down, then a horizontal shaft at right angles, at the end of which he would hollow out a cubiculum, or bedroom, and line it with rows of loculi, rectangular indentations to put individual corpses in. As cubicula filled up, he would build others at the end of the other passages. When the fossor found himself up against the employee's property line, he would eventually dig vertically instead of horizontally before excavating another cubiculum. Some Roman cubicula are stacked seven stories high. And finally, the fossa would make the whole place habitable, habitable by digging shafts called lucinaria to let in light and air, which did not, however, prevent, Gishop, prevent Bishop Gilbert Burnet, an 18th century Briton, from grumbling about the darkness and thick air in the catacombs, refusing to stay in them for more than an hour at a time. In the 4th century, after the triumph of the Emperor Constantine and the end of the persecutions, the number of Christian converts increased, and therefore, then so did the number of Christian dead. So the old haphazard arrangements of Yolokuli gave way to efficiency. No space was wasted. The corners where two galleries met were divided into smaller plots for children, an arrangement that served not only to relieve the pressure on the morgue, but also, no doubt, to sweeten the local fosters' commission. As time passed, and Christianity became fashionable and finally legal, loculi were made over into more elegant resting places. Graves of martyrs were refurbished, and pilgrims from outside Italy began visiting. Eating a funereal meal called a refrigerium, the word still appears in Roman Catholic prayer books, near a martyr's prayer tomb, and attending anniversary masses at his grave. What didn't happen in the catacombs were regular church services. Nowhere was there enough space to hold them. Nor, as Bosco mistakenly claims, did Christians take refuge in the catacombs during persecutions. Catacombs were cemeteries, known and maintained by the Roman government, and the authorities could as easily have found worshippers there as above ground. In the years after Constantine's triumph, the catacombs enjoyed their golden age. Elegant inscriptions, archaeologists have so far counted 40,000 of them, began to appear, as did a distinctively Christian art. Perhaps because of the Romans' deeply held reverence for the dead, they seemed to have made no attempt to interfere with Christian funereal art. But it evolved in a pagan setting. The sarcophagus of Marcus Aurelius Prosthenes, dating from the end of the 3rd century, is a pagan work of art in every aspect but one. An inscription informs us that on March 3rd, 217, Prosthenes was led back to God. In other words, he was Christianized but his coffin retained elements of paganism. Later Christians began adapting pagan symbols for their own purposes. As the theologian Alexander Schmiemenwer writes, in accepting any particular form of natural religion, even paganism, 
that the church in its own mind has returned to God what rightly belongs to him, always and in every way restoring the fallen image. So an apparently pagan funeria inscription complete with acanthus leaves includes the unmistakably Christian symbols of two fish and an anchor. Elsewhere, other pagan images received Christian interpretations. The pagan Creophorus, or ram bearer, doubled as a Christ the Good Shepherd, Venus, the goddess of love, did duty as the Virgin Mary, and Endemion, a young man put to sleep forever by the moon goddess Selene, is recycled as Jonah resting under his climbing gourd. And finally, the pagan symbol becomes a Christian one, thus the addition of a bird to representation of Deucalion, sole survivor of a mythological flood ordered up by Zeus, tells us that buyers of this picture were thinking not of Deucalion, but of Noah. As striking as their art and architecture may have been, a visit to the city beneath the earth remained a chilling descent into the land of the dead. The 4th century Christian scholar St. Jerome offered the first-person view. When I was a boy, receiving my education in Rome, I and my, scho- my schoolfellows used, on Sundays, to make the circuit of the sepulchres of the apostles and martyrs. Many a time did we go down into the catacombs. These are excavated deep into the earth and contain, on either hand as you enter, the bodies of the dead buried in the wall. It is all so dark that the language of the prophet seems to be fulfilled. Let them go down quick into hell. Only occasionally is light let in to mitigate the horror of the gloom, and then not so much through a window as through a hole. You take each step with caution, as surrendered by deep night. You recall the words of Virgil, horror on every side, and terrible even the silence. After Constantine moved his capital to Byzantinium, now Istanbul, Rome became prey to attacks by foreign invaders. The catacombs were particularly vulnerable to grave robbers. So, in 817, Pope Pascal I brought above ground to the church of St. Presaid the bodies of 2,300 martyrs. Thus did the catacombs cease to be an interest to pilgrims, and the memory of them failed but not the significance of their contribution to Christian history.